a, um, a Buckeye, just so you know, is a worthless nut. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Preach it, brother. Oh, man. Good job. I never heard Ohio State using a communion thought before, but, you know. <laughs> oh, you guys are so much fun. So much fun. So much fun. I love, love, love our church. Our, this past week, we had our uh, monthly leadership team meeting with the elders and our finance team, and we we're trying to find a place to meet. We couldn't find a place to meet. I mean, it's like every room was taken up in the church. So we came back here. We met back here in this room behind the stage and just to have a place to meet. And I thought, this is so fantastic. Our building, this tool that we have here is being used like every day, every night. It's just absolutely amazing. You come in in the middle of the week at 12 o'clock, you'll see there's probably 50 people here uh, for AA every single day. We have groups in the mornings, the middle afternoon, community groups. There was community groups meeting that night. It was fantastic. And then even after that, uh, we had this, this, this great meeting time and we were meeting from 5.30 to 8.30. And then at 8.30, I came outside. This room was dark. I had to get my flashlight to go out through. I was going to lock up the, the place, you know. And we come out there. I opened up the, the doors, and the place was still packed. I mean, it was just like 8.30, Tuesday night. It was just packed. I looked at Dina Brown, teaches our ladies' Bible study, and then Mike McCarahan does the men's Bible study. And uh, I said, you guys are still here? Did you meet this late? They go, no, we ended in like a half hour ago. Everybody's just still here. Nobody <laughs> wanted to leave. And I thought, that is so fantastic. That is a really, truly a sign of a healthy, healthy church. And I just love it. I want to say thank you to you guys for your generosity. I mean, your generosity is transforming in, uh, at lives. I mean, hey, Omar, you're back in town. Good to see you. I'm starting to see people uh, that are northerners that are coming back. You know, you guys are coming back home. And it's great. It's great. Glad to see you guys. And uh, man, it's just thank you for your generosity. Thank you for uh, all the ways that you, in your giving and your generosity, are helping change lives in the community, local, global. I mean, we're getting involved in a lot more global missions now. It's just, I'm just so grateful. And I and I hope that I hope that every preacher across our country is saying this about their church right now. But there is something uniquely special about our body here. It really is. I mean, I love it absolutely love it and it's not this building this building is just oh you know i mean it's just a building really it's just a tool that helps us to be able to do ministry but it's about the lives and the relationships and i just think it's 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 the most refreshing recharging restorative relational running hard after jesus church i've ever been a part of i couldn't think of any more r words but i thought that would be you know <laughs> it's just so amazing one of the characteristics that I really appreciate maybe the most about our church, and, and it's different because I've been in some different churches, you know, we don't get too hung up on legalistic things here. We just really don't. I mean, if you're a staunch, you know, you grew up in a really legalistic church, you're either going to get saved here or you're, you're not going to like it here. I mean, really, because we're, we're just really just a not a legalistic church. We don't get too hung up on non-salvation issues. But at the same time, at the same time of that, we're still striving. We, we want to we do our very best for moral excellence in following after the ways of Jesus. But what do I mean when I'm talking about legalism? What do I mean by that? Uh, so how many of you would say that you grew up in the Bible Belt area? You grew up in the Bible. So a good number of you. If you don't really understand the Bible Belt area, it's a little bit different. Churches and even going to church and Christianity is a little bit different in the Bible Belt than it is in the northeast of the country or even out west in the country. So Bible Belt would be Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio, 
um, parts of Illinois, Virginia, West Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, north of Gainesville where the frost line is, you know, south of Gainesville where we are is not really part of the Bible Belt, except for the people from the Bible Belt that have moved down here. Then you got Misery, Misery, Arkansas, sorry, I had to say it, uh, Arkansas, you know, did I say Kentucky? <laughs> yeah. So, so that would be kind of the, the uh, Bible Belt area and Bible Belt region. And church, honestly, church looks a little bit different in those states. Now, I'm speaking very much in generalities this morning, but many of the people that grew up in those areas and they grew up in, those, in churches around that area, they would say that they are Christian. If you ask them, are you a Christian? They would say, yes, I'm a Christian, but largely because... And I'm not, again, I'm generalizing. This is not everybody, but largely because my family was a Christian, uh, my parents were a Christian, my grandparents were a Christian, so yes, I'm a Christian. And so there's, there's this challenge if you've grown up in that portion of the country. Those of you in the Northeast didn't really, you weren't really affected by that as much unless you were Catholics, and Catholics can struggle with this a little bit too. But people out West, you know, it's not a bad thing to be from the Bible Belt. That's not, that's not it at all. It's where I'm, I'm from. But it can produce some challenges for the church when it is a culture of religion versus a culture of following after Jesus. And it can happen in any church, and we're going to see that in just a few minutes in the book of Acts that happened in one of the early churches 2,000 years ago. Uh, but it seems that it can happen more in some of the Bible Belt regions of the church. And again, I'm talking in generalities, but I served in a church in California for a while, and one of the things that I found really, actually really refreshing in being in California is if you were in California, you ask somebody if they're a Christian, they, and they said yes, you can pretty much bet that they really truly were following hard after Jesus. And it wasn't just, it wasn't so much of a cultural thing if you were in California. But sometimes if you ask somebody in the Bible Belt, if you, are you a Christian? And they would say, yeah, that's what's on my birth certificate. And, uh, you know, almost like, yeah, I'm a registered Republican. I mean, I don't always vote that way, but that's how I'm registered, you know. And so it's almost like that kind of same concept. Yeah, my whole family is Christian. Uh, I don't really go to church or practice it much, but, yeah, I'm Christian. And, and sometimes I think, you know, we can miss the point, especially if you grew up in that culture like I did. I think we can miss the point. Is this about religion or is this more about a relationship with God? And so... You know, like I said, Catholics can deal with that a little bit too. I'm Catholic because I was born a Catholic. Nothing at wrong, nothing wrong at all with being born a Catholic. But what all of us want to ultimately do and what we want to strive for is living a, a, a life following hard after Jesus, not following after religion. And so, again, nothing, nothing wrong at all with growing up in the heritage of Christianity. It's just that it does create, for those of you who grew up in that way, like me, it creates some challenges that for us interacting with people in the church that we really need to look out for. I'll give you some examples. In a lot of churches, the, um, the church can become more focused on moral behavioral modification than it is following after Jesus. And so the church will put all kinds of rules in place based on society or based on our culture during the day that really doesn't have anything to do with the Bible or even what God was trying to show us. For instance, when our country was going through prohibition, and even before prohibition, the church would say, you can't drink alcohol. And so I grew up in a church that you, you drank alcohol, you're just, you know, you're going to hell. I mean, that's just like, you know, you just can't, you can't drink alcohol, even though Jesus drank wine for somehow, I don't know why we missed that. And then his first miracle, he turned water into wine. I don't know how we missed that either, you know. 
But the church added a rule where the Bible was actually silent about it. The problem wasn't, the Bible never says you can't drink alcohol. It says, don't get drunk, right? You know, in, in moderation, right? And I know we have a lot of people from AA here, and, and there's a lot of people that shouldn't drink any alcohol because your stop button is broken, and I, we get that, and we want to support that and help you in every way possible. But the Bible doesn't say this, that doesn't take this man-made rule and put that into, to, to, but we've put that into place in the churches that Christians can't drink alcohol, but the Bible doesn't say that. It just says don't get drunk. But it's not just with alcohol. It's actually with anything and everything that we can come up with. There's a whole slew of things that are regulations that aren't necessarily in the Bible, but the church has put on and put, made it hard for people in the church. Dancing was one that was growing up in my area. You weren't allowed to dance, even though David danced. He even took his clothes off. I'm not suggesting that, but, you know, um, David danced an indign indignified dance before the Lord, you know, and, but churches would say you can't dance or they couldn't, couldn't uh, gamble. Well, gambling never said, there's nothing said in the Bible about gambling. It does talk about being good stewards of the money, so we cer certainly want try to try to be good stewards of the resources that God has given us. But we put these pressures and we put these rules and regulations on people where the Bible doesn't even do that, and we make it harder Sometimes, some churches, some Christians make it harder for people to come to Jesus than even what the Bible says or even what God did. I remember in the 80s, we talked about the 80s, we had a little bit of fun with the 80s last week, but somewhere about 1988 or so, I was in seminary, I, was, uh, I had long hair and an earring, and we had leather coats and ripped up jeans. I'm glad there's no pictures to prove it. And uh, well, we were visiting a, uh, a church, you know, it was a very conservative Bible Belt church, we were visiting this church on a Sunday night service, and there was about four or five of us that we'd all come in there. We all looked about the same, you know, just like, like we'd stepped out of the Lost Boys or something. And, and uh, after the worship service was over, this gentleman turned around, and he said to us, he said, boys, good to see you in church. You're welcome back here any day. If you cut that hair, take those earrings out and put on some respectable clothes. You know, and I, I was just, I was so, I was so livid. Fortunately, we were all grounded in our faith. I mean, we were all seminary students studying to be pastors, you know. Um, but what if that had been somebody who had come in and they'd put these rules, you know, you have to have your hair a certain way, you have to have, can't wear an earring, you know, no tattoos for you, you know, whatever it is, and for somebody coming to seek God. And we make it harder for people than the, than the Bible even does sometimes by the rules that we have. Sometimes, and this is all just a setup for where we're going today, so just hang with me, but sometimes we even take Scripture out of context to make our rules and our regulations, or we'll borrow something from one of the 613 Jewish laws from the Old Testament to prove our point, to, to make our point. Can you imagine how legalistic they were in, in the early church, the Jews even, with the 613 laws that they have to find, but, but even we can take these Levitical laws and things that we see in Scripture in churches. I've seen this where they'll they'll take this one law out over here and they'll say, "Oh, you can't have a tattoo," uh, but they're not gonna they they won't follow this law over here about your camel for whatever reason. I don't you know you see what I'm getting at? They'll just pick and choose the laws that they want to follow, but the ones they don't want to follow, they kind of just push those laws beside. And those are all Old Testament laws anyway. Those are Levitical man-made laws. But we look at it in the Bible, and we want to make the Bible say exactly what we have our expectations to be in moral behavioralism. Whew, that's a lot. Are you following that, though? Are you tracking that? That's a lot. 
That's why, that's why even the, the Pharisees, when they asked Jesus, and you've heard me say this, and hopefully you can even repeat this, when they asked Jesus, they said, out of the 613 laws, what are the most important laws? What's the one important law? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But he says there's a second one that's equal to it, and just like you and me, the Pharisees probably thought, what could possibly be equal to that? And he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Jesus is saying, the entirety of Scripture comes down, everything comes down to these two things, these two commands, love God, love people. But we make it so complicated. We make it more complicated than God did because Jesus boiled it down to that, love God, love people. And I think this is a really important issue for us as a church, especially as we are launching into growth groups. As we launch into growth groups, it is going to be important for us to guard against moral behavioralism or trying to be a moral behavior modification institution rather than a group of believers coming around that are broken, following hard after Jesus. And how do we guard against religion causing division within the church? That may sound weird, but you know, religion can cause division within the church because if we're not careful we can all bring our baggage with us from all of the different areas and all the different churches and all the different pastors that we sat under and all of these different things from all of our different backgrounds and we can bring them into this place and if we're not careful this unity that we enjoy and this this fellowship that we enjoy and this non-legalistic thing that we can enjoy we can we can get kind of kind of wrapped up in legalism if we're not careful and so that's why we're talking about it that's why i think it's important and we have a great teaching in the book of Acts that's rarely taught. Honestly, it's rarely taught because it can be seen as a little bit boring. So you're going to have to lean in a little bit more today and hang with me here. It can be seen as a little bit boring. And we're talking about circumcision, so it's a little bit uncomfortable. You know, so that's not something we think about, you know, first thing in the morning when we, you know, it's just not. And so um, anyway, uh, so we're going to look at what the, the early church had this challenge of this legalism aspect, and we're going to look at that. So if you're just joining us, we're in the book of Acts. Acts is a history book, basically, of the early church and how the early church functioned, how they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and how they had this deep, deep belief in the resurrection of Jesus. They spread the gospel message all over the world, all the while having to navigate a lot of their cultural heritage of how they grew up as Jews. In these, under this Jewish rules and Jewish law system, and they had to navigate that in the early church, and it's something that we're going to have to navigate as well. So in Acts chapter 15, the church is about to battle one of those moral, legalistic, behavior modification type issues, and if they had not navigated this well, if they hadn't led well in this, it's very possible the church might not have gotten off the ground. And so this passage we're going to look at it's actually going to answer some really cool questions like, what role should politics play in the church? And we're not going to talk about politics specifically, but hopefully you can see that through this passage as to how Christians can sometimes further divide our community by not welcoming in people on the other side of the aisle from our political beliefs. And it can happen. And we need to not make it harder for people than it is. Or, or how do we handle gray areas like, is it okay to drink alcohol? Or this new challenge that churches are having to deal with now. What about medical marijuana? You know, what about eating Twinkies? We don't talk about that, right? I mean, of course, if you're doing the medical marijuana, you're probably going to struggle with eating too many Twinkies too. I don't know. But anyway, 
But really, the thing is, anything you can think of that is man-made rules, that are man-made rules, uh, we can start speaking where the Bible doesn't speak, and we can get the Bible to say just about anything you want it to say. You really can. If you work hard enough and you work, have workarounds, you can get the Bible to say just about anything that you want to say. And so how do you, and, and this is important for us, what do we do if people in your small group disagree with you on some of these issues? That's the challenge, and that's the tension that we are going to, as a church, have to wrestle with because small groups are the lifeblood of a church, but small groups can also be a cancer in the church. Because you get this group, and all of a sudden you get negativity, and negativity is what killed the Israelites, right? And while we enjoy this, oh, my goodness, I love our church. I'm enjoying this so much. I want to guard against it. I want to make sure that we're not facing some of the same issues or dealing with it differently than how the early church, you know, dealt with this. And how can we maintain our unity without being legalistic at the same time without compromising moral excellence? And so that's a, it's a big challenge. It really is a big challenge for us. All right, real quick. The more that you expand your worldview, the more that you're going to experience these kinds of issues that we're talking about. For instance, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you before, but I grew up in Kentucky. And that's pretty much, <laughs> that's pretty much I was kind of in my bubble there. I, mean, I didn't really, we didn't travel a whole lot. I mean, we had our camper and we'd come down to Florida and stuff all the time, but I didn't, we, we did, I just stayed right there in my bubble. I went to my church, the same church. I kind of grew up in the same church all my life. And I, my worldview was pretty small, honestly. And it wasn't until I began to travel out west and different places and northeast and diff, different areas. And I'm going, oh my gosh, this is a whole other world out there from what I grew up in, you know? And then when you travel internationally, I mean, it's just like, wow, I didn't know. You can be a Christian and you worship this way. They dance in their church. And there's just so much exposure to so many different ways to worship the same God. And it is amazing. So the more that we get outside of our bubble, the more that we expand our worldview. It's one of the reasons that I say get involved in a short-term mission trip because it'll change your worldview. Your worldview expands and it helps you be able to minister to people in your own community with a greater capacity. It's fantastic. So the more that we grow as a church with diversity from people coming in from all kinds of different areas and backgrounds, the more that we're going to have to deal with these issues. And it's going to be important for us um, to navigate how we do that. All right. Whew. That was all the setup introduction. I mean, really. That was it. That was everything. It was all introduction. That was our tension. That was our conflict. Now let's look and see how the, the church handled it, and it'll be pretty quick from here. Um, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some of the men from Judea, they arrived, they were Christian men, and they arrived, and they began to teach the believers. And this is the kind of stuff that they were teaching and the kind of stuff that they were saying. Unless you are circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they were saying. And so a lot of the first Christians came from the Jewish background. They had been raised on the Old Testament law, these 613 laws. One of the most important Jewish laws was that every male had to be circumcised. It was a God-given sign during that time to separate the people of God from the world. And so a lot of these new Jewish Christians were teaching, if you're really going to be a child of the king, you're really going to be a child of God, you're going to follow after Jesus, you have to be circumcised. Now, can you imagine... 
what that would do to our next steps class here at Center Point, <laughs> if that was the case, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm, I usually do the next steps class. I'm like, okay, guys, if you want to be a member of the church, this is what you have to do. I can just see, I can just see them kind of going, uh, uh, honey, you can join this church if you want. I'm going to wait out in the car. I'll be out here if it's all the same to you, you know. So they're teaching, they're teaching this in the church that you can't be a Christian unless you get circumcised. And then we see Paul and Barnabas, they disagreed with him. I love what the scripture says. They argued with him vehemently. And finally, the church, they decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some, some local believers to talk, about, to talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. They wanted to wrestle with this. They wanted to solve this. This was, I want you to get in your mind, this was a ridiculously long trip for Paul and Barnabas to go from Syria, where they're on his missionary journey, to travel all the way back to Jerusalem on foot, to travel all the way back. It's right in the middle of Paul's missionary journeys, right in the middle of him writing books that we're still studying 2,000 years later. And in the midst of this conflict, Paul goes all the way back. He thinks this conflict is so important to resolve. That's why I'm talking about it today. That he thinks this conflict is so important to resolve that he's willing to go all the way back to Jerusalem to have a meeting with the other spiritual leaders and the guys who are apostles and elders to solve this issue, to sort this whole thing out. So it says, so the apostles, so, so Paul and Barnabas arrived back in Jerusalem. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood up and he addressed them as follows. And he says, brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles. Those are the people that weren't Jewish. They didn't grow up with the Jewish laws so that they could hear the good news and gospel and believe as well. And God knows people's hearts. And he confirms that he uh, accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Same Holy Spirit that you guys got as Jews, same Holy Spirit that the Gentiles get. By, and he did that for us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? And so what Peter's saying here in this argument, this dissertation here that he's giving to the leaders there, he's going back to, somebody's phone's ringing there, uh, <laughs> Peter's going back to the 613 Jewish laws, which circumcision was just one. There's 612 others. And Peter's probably like, you know, hey, I don't know about you guys, but I never really felt like I did a great job at following all these laws anyway. I, I don't And I was born a Jew. I was born a Jew, and I can't even keep up with all these 600. First of all, I can't even keep them straight. You know, how was I allowed? How far was I allowed to walk on the Sabbath day again? I can't remember. In February, we were in Israel, and if you're in, in Jerusalem, there's above the buildings, there's these like fishing lines above the buildings everywhere. And I thought it was to keep like the pigeons from coming down or something. And I asked our guy, what are these lines? What are the lines up here? He goes, that marks out the, the distance and the area where the Jews are able to walk on Shabbat or Sabbath, on Sabbath day. So they reach this area, they can't go any further, and they have to stop and, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. I'm probably not giving the overview of that real well. But I'm just thinking to myself, wow, that's so legalistic. That's not what God intended when he gave us the Sabbath. When he gave us the Sabbath, it was for your enjoyment. It was for you to have a break. 
from your hard working and taking care of the earth and families and children and spend your day focusing, breathing, refreshing, recharging, and worshiping God. He did that for us, not to make life harder for us. And they take this and they make it harder. Same thing. We went to the hotel. We got to the hotel. <laughs> you guys know because they were there. Michelle and I got lost in the hotel because there's, there's a Shabbat elevator that the Jews have to take this certain elevator on Shabbat on the day of Sabbath. Then they have an elevator for the Gentiles, for, for me. And we got on the wrong elevator, and I, we couldn't go anywhere. But, and and the, the, on Shabbat, the elevator has to stop at every floor because it would be against the law for them to travel too far for going from floor one to floor 13. Do you see how this works out? It's crazy, right? I mean, it's just crazy, the, the laws that, that are set up. And so and they, they ask, all kind, there's all kinds of questions. Are we allowed to eat llama meat? Is that one included? You know, what about turkey bacon? Is that allowed? I don't know. What about the material? What about yoga pants? Are those, uh, hopefully not for men, are those allowed? You know, so, you know, and the disciples, they're having this conversation and they're like, no matter how hard I try, I never felt like I could keep up with all the law and measure up. Thaddeus, did you keep all the laws? You know, you know, Noah, did you keep all the laws? How about you, Bartholomew? Did you keep up? No. And so Peter's saying, well, if we couldn't even barely, we couldn't even barely follow these laws and we were born Jews, why would we project that kind of burden onto the Gentiles? That's what he says. And then he goes on to say, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So none of these laws could save us anyway. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the resurrection in the tomb is what has saved us. And putting our faith and hope into him, that's what he did is what saves us, not what we did or what, or what we can do. It's what Jesus Christ has already done for us. So when Peter's laying all this out, it says, everyone listened quietly. And Barnabas and Paul, he started talking about the miraculous signs and the wonders that God had done through them uh, with the Gentiles. And when they finished talking, so you see this whole thing going on, the big leaders of the church and the early church are talking through this issue. Peter shared, Paul and Barnabas shared, and then James gets up. And James says, brothers, listen to me. And he goes on to tell them all about all the prophecies that the Gentiles are going to, they're going to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and come to Christ. And then at the end, James says this, my judgment is this. He's talking to the council of leaders here. My judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning their hearts to God. Don't make it difficult. Center point, I will say it. Let's don't make it difficult for those outside these walls to come to know Jesus. I think about that a lot when I prepare messages. I, I don't want to use words that no one can understand. Uh, I try to say things as plainly as possible. I don't want to make it harder than it has to be. I don't want to, I don't want to speak down on, to people that are on the outside because they aren't living the way that I think that they should live or some of these expectations that I have for them. I don't want to make it harder for the person who's struggling with same-sex attraction because I somehow stigmatize their sin as being different than my own in my own life. I don't want to make it difficult for someone on the other side of the political aisle than me by mixing secondary political positions with the gospel message. I don't want to do that. 
if I was in Kentucky right now, you guys won't, you guys won't appreciate this as much. But if I was in Kentucky right now, I would say, I don't want to make it difficult for you if you're a Duke fan, you know? <laughs> if you're a Duke fan, you can still come here. You have to sit in the back, but you can still come. Yeah. Do we have any Duke fans? One, two, two Duke fans? They're in the back. <laughs> real quick, real quick. There's, there's one good thing about a Duke fan. They're, Duke has a UK right in the middle of its name. Anyway. Right, so, anyway. Circumcision. <laughs> here's, here's the thing. I don't, I don't want to make it more difficult. Uh, when we have small groups... I don't want us to have small groups that are so closed off that no one can break the circle. You know, um, we need to evaluate everything that we do to make sure we aren't making it more difficult for people to come to Christ than it should be. And we still, listen, listen, don't, I, I mean, don't get me wrong and hear this. We should absolutely strive for moral excellence. We should absolutely strive to live the way that Jesus wants us to live. And I'm not talking about giving up on our morals. I'm not saying eat, drink, and, and, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I'm not saying that we should throw out the commandments of God. The passage goes on after this to talk about moral excellence and don't engage in sexual immorality and try your best to follow hard after God. Just don't add more to the Scripture to make it even harder than what God says. And don't use Levitical law as a weapon to try to get the Bible to match up the way you think that culture should be or society should be and your moral expectations. That's so important. You know, at Centerpoint, we, uh, we network and are a part of a network of churches that are independent Christian churches and disciples of Christ churches. Some people call that a denomination, but it's actually very non-denominational. But we identify and we network together with those churches, and they're called Restoration Churches. And there are churches that are trying to get back. Every, every church is autonomous. We talk about this in Next Step. In Next Steps, every church is autonomous. We have our own leadership structure. There's no outside organization that tells us how we have to believe or whatever. We, we form that within our elders and body in the church. But our churches are, that we network with in that group are trying to get back to being in fellowship with believers without a bunch of man-made rules. And, and unity in the church is central and core. And a few of the mottos uh, that we grew up, this started in about the early 1800s, you know, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no law but love. Those were, those were kind of like, because a lot of denominations were adding in extra things, adding extra rules and extra laws and extra books. And we said, no creed but Christ. Let's just follow Christ. No other books outside doesn't mean you can't read other books and, you know, and you're growing in your faith. But no other books take, take the kind of shape of the authority as the Bible. So no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no law but love. And, and then, and then I, I, really like, I really like this where uh, one of the other models is speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. If the Bible's speaking clearly on a moral excellence issue, I mean, let's hold to that. Let's try our best to live according to that. But where the Bible's silent, let's be silent. And I think that's going to be really important for us as we navigate and going further, further and uh, going forward and helping other people who are maybe not at the same level in their journey of faith that you are. And so just take that into consideration. Andy Stanley is one of my favorite pastors. I listen to him a lot. 
And he talks about this issue in the church, and he says there are three areas where we don't, uh, where we want to make sure we don't drift, because we know drift can can happen. You know, drift just happens; it can happen. If we're not careful, we can drift spiritually away from the Lord. There's some things that church can do as well. So these are three areas. Real quick, we need to make sure that we don't drift from our passion for people outside of these walls. Our passion should be worshiping God. Our passion should be loving each other. And our passion should be for those outside of these walls as well. To to love them in such a way that they're going to know and experience the grace and love and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so we need to make sure that our passion for those outside of these walls doesn't get replaced by pacifying our own personal preferences or pacifying ourselves. We all have personal preferences. I have personal preferences. I have certain songs I like, certain ways, I, you know, everything. I have my own personal preferences. You have your personal preferences. But it's not about me, and it's not about you. It's everything about worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and coming in here, worshiping him, and helping other people to experience the love of Jesus Christ from the outside. And so it's really important for us to not, not drift in that area. The other is to not drift from, from grace to law. We don't want to drift from grace to law. It, if you ever accuse me of something, uh, of making a bad decision, I hope that you accuse me of making a bad decision that's based on, that I tip the scales a little bit more towards grace than law. And here, here's why. If, I'm going to make a, if I have a tough decision to make, I want to, I want to lean more on the grace side of that decision. Even if, even if, you know, you think I'm wrong on that. Here's why. When I was 26 years old, I was arrogant. I was cocky. I thought I had it all figured out. And I had actually less grace in my life. When I would talk to the church when I was 26 years old, I was like, rah, 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 you know. And, and now I'm much more on the grace side of things. You know why? Because in those 30 years that have come from when I was that age, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I've made a ton of mistakes. I've made bad leadership decisions. I've made bad decisions as a dad, as a husband, as a son, as a brother. All of the different roles that I play. And and I've had a lot of grace given to me in my life. And I want to give that kind of grace out too. Jesus hung out with sinners. And he showed them a lot of grace. I want to be a part of a church that can say that we do the same. And a lot of grace has been given to me. And a lot of grace has been given to you. And I want us to be a church that extends grace to others. So if we're going to make a mistake, let's err a little bit. I'd rather err a little bit on the side of grace than I would on the side of law. That's just me. Um, all right, the third. Oh, we can, we, can, we can get wrapped up in this too, where we start making things even in our own church, a law. I don't want to go too far over here, but um, our laws can be overwhelming. You know, we, we, we're probably not going to have, I'm trying to think how much I can say here. We're probably not going to have a problem with circumcision. That's not going to be a dividing issue in our church. I've often wondered, too, I just, if I'm just real honest, because sometimes I say things out loud that everybody's thinking but nobody wants to say, how did they know? <laughs> Next steps. Was there a lineup? All right. Lord, help him, Lord. But the things that we're going to wrestle with here, <laughs> Jason, after the first service, Jason goes, man, I love serving with you. You just say whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
Do you, uh, you know, but our laws can be just as overwhelming if we're not careful. Do you serve in the church? Well, I know. You're less than. You're less than us if you don't serve in the church. No, no, no. Don't put that on them. Should we serve in the church? Absolutely, we should serve. We should serve in our community. We should serve the Lord. But don't put that as a regulation. Uh, everybody's in a different spot in their journey. Don't put that. How much do you give to the church? Do you give to the church? Some churches look at that and see how much you give. Oh, we don't do that. That's between you and God, you know. What do you want to get? Should we be generous? Absolutely. Old Testament law says give 10% of everything that you have. Jesus says give it all. So, you know, which one do you want to do? I mean, just up to you. Generosity is <laughs> for us, but, you know, it's not whether you're going to come to the church. You can come to church if you're not giving anything. Um, have you, this could be careful. Have you gone through Rooted? Rooted is our flagship thing. Right? You know, you got to go through Rooted. No, Rooted is a tool. It's just a tool to help you grow spiritually. If you don't go through Rooted, you're still part of us. You know, whatever. Have you been divorced? I mean, that's one that searches. Are you divorced? You can still be a part of us. I mean, there's all kinds of rules. Do you rescue dogs or do you give them from a breeder? You know, whatever. <laughs> like, if you can think it up, we can make a law for it, right? I mean, you, you can. So anyway, the third thing is, last thing, don't drift from a focus on internal transformation to one of external conformity. And, and basically, I'm saying the same things here as I was saying in the other one, but the internal work that Jesus is doing in our hearts is the most important part of the journey. External change only happens after the internal work is in process. All right, let me say that again, and I'm just going to wrap up. External change only happens after the internal work is in process. But if we focus on the external conformity first, the internal may not ever happen. That is critical and important for us. And I want you to know if you're here that God wants to know you, he wants a relationship with you, he made a way for you, he came to earth to pay the penalty for your sin. He wants you to come into your, he wants to come into your life, he wants to forgive your sin, he wants to make you a new person. And no matter how far you have traveled away from God, he wants to draw you near to him. But the gospel is not change and then come. The gospel is come. And then he will do the work that needs to happen in your life. Come just as you are. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come and are part of the church. If that's the case, none of us would ever come. Because it's only by coming to the king and submitting to the king Jesus that he will begin the work that needs to happen in our hearts and in our lives. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Sorry, I went real long today, but I get really passionate about that. And I think it's just so important for us. And I just pray that you'll pray with me and we'll pray over this. We'll pray over this even Wednesday night when you come because uh, hopefully we're going to have so many people here that are praying for the mission and praying for those outside and not making it difficult for them to come in, but welcoming them with grace and mercy and love. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for the unity that we have and the love that we have in this place. And God, may we fight for that. May we work hard to keep you as the center focus of our lives and loving each other, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.